Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Golden Skull by John Blaine. Volume 6, Chapter 13, The Peaceful Profession The Spindrift campfire blazed high and its warmth was welcome in the cold mountain night. Balaban and Dogmeat were out on patrol, although it was unlikely that any of Fugway had followed the invaders over the mountain. Camp had been pitched in a grove of trees on the Igorot side of the divide. The boys and Tony had taken suitable clothing from their supplies and were now equipped with sturdy trail clothes and warm leather jackets. Chada similarly was dressed in spare clothes and now resembled only an Igorot in haircut. Tony sipped steaming coffee from a battered mug. He grinned at the faces around the fire. Rick, Scotty, Angel, Manitok, Chada, and Pilly Pill, whose wounded leg had been treated with supplies from the first aid kit. Archaeologists at work, Tony commented. You know, usually we dig in musty old tombs all day, and now and then we get excited about a clay jug or something else that we uncover. The archaeologist has nothing but old jugs or beetles and stuff like that to get excited about. It's a peaceful profession, boys. That's why I like it. It's calm. It's quiet. It's orderly. Pilly Pill didn't get the irony in Tony's voice, but the others laughed. Scotty nodded agreement. Well, that's the popular idea of an archaeologist, all right. Sounds like a recruiting ad, doesn't it? Be peaceful and quiet. Live to a ripe old age. Be an archaeologist. Reminds me of the recruiting poster that hooked me once to join the Marines. It said, see the world, learn a trade. I joined. I saw the world while snaking on my belly through the South Pacific. I learned a trade, too. How to fire a rifle. Very few peacetime riflemen needed, however. We'll combine our trades, Tony said. You might say we already did early at the night. As Rick put more wood on the fire, he said, We're together for the first time. Before, either Tony or Chada was missing. Now what do we do? Tony considered. I gotta admit, I was not given much thought to the purpose of the expedition when you came after me. I spent most of my time imagining how my skull would look on the knick-knack shelf of the hut. What knick-knack shelf? Chada asked. You wouldn't have noticed, Tony told them. It was high in the rear of the hut, above the opening you made. A shelf full of skulls. I kept trying to flatter myself that surely my head would be prettier than those, but I didn't really believe it. Do you really believe the Ifugues would have taken your head? Rick asked. You bet I do. You should have seen Nangolat. He shed civilization with his clothes. He got down to a breech cloth and he was all primitive. He got a bad case of bats in the belfry. Believe me. I'd say he is a true fanatic. Yes, Adhel Manotak said positively. You remember I tell you about those eyes of his. The doctor is right. Nangolat is crazy. He is a killer. Rick remembered the crazed, distorted face of Nangolat rushing for the jeep with a spear extended. I vote for Nangolat as nuts, too. And insane and dangerous. Well, this being Mountain Province, Philippines, I don't think it would do much good to call men in white coats to bring a straight jacket, Scotty observed. So what are we going to do? We could ignore him, avoid him, shoot him. 
The first is hard since he carries a sharp spear. The second, maybe. The third I reject as being unscientific and unkind, not to mention illegal. One more possibility, Chato offered. Catch him, tie him up, have Scotty talk him into a stupor. Rick chuckled. You may have an idea there, Chada. Seriously, Nangolad is guilty of kidnapping. That makes him a criminal. Surely it isn't wrong to catch an escaped criminal and turn him over to justice. Not wrong, Tony said, but probably a little impractical. Rick pressed the point. Why, if we thought faster, we could have picked him up tonight. You could have knocked him colder than a penguin's pocketbook. We could have tossed him into the back of the jeep like a sack of bones. Yeah, Rick, but chances like that don't come twice. Catching him now would mean making a definite attempt. It would mean an expedition to go try to catch him. I doubt he'd stay around to be caught. I guess you're right, Rick admitted. Well, let's get back to Scotty's question. What do we do now? Apparently Nangolat had his people up in arms against us. There's no law enforcement worthy of the name up here. So we can't call for help. So what's next? Tony poured himself another mug of coffee from the steaming pot. We continue after the cash of artifacts. The boys just stared at him. Chada shook hands with the scientist. Now I see why Rick and Scotty call you Tony. Number one regular guy. Why let a little thing like a whole nation of headhunters scare you off? Archaeology is certainly a peaceful profession. Rick said admiringly. Scotty and I don't scare easily, but it didn't occur to me that we should proceed as though nothing had happened. You're getting the wrong impression, Tony said mildly. Let's consider the situation here. There's Nangulat, the principal troublemaker. What is his reason for behaving like he does? Well, Scotty began, he certainly was the one who tried to kill you on the boat. Yeah, I think he was. He would have known all about the expedition from Okola. He would have known what ship we were on, and a phone call to the agent of the line would have told him of our arrival time, from which he could easily have figured what time we would enter Manila Bay. He would also have known that I was the archaeologist for the expedition. After all, I signed the correspondence we had with Okola, and he was Okola's assistant. But why does he want to kill you? Rick asked. Religious reasons. Uncle Lot's a religious fanatic. I saw that quite clearly during the time I was his captive. He does not want the artifacts dug up, or at least he didn't. Remember the legend? If they're dug up, drought and earthquakes will follow. By killing me aboard the ship, the expedition would never have taken place. That must have been how he reasoned. Rick was beginning to see the light. Odd hell, was Nangolat supposed to be a Christian? Angel shook his head. No, he was a pagan. Once he went to church with me, but that was only to see how Christians worship. He worshipped the Fugue gods, which were the museum at the university. Rick commented. I imagine his studies with Okola, and especially the work he did tracking down the legends of the Golden Skull, made him even more religious. I won't say superstitious. You're right, Tony said approvingly. This is not superstition. Angolat is as firmly convinced of the correctness of his religious beliefs as any Christian martyr. I'm sure he considered the object of our expedition as pure sacrilege. I'm with you up to a point, Scotty remarked. 
Why didn't he kill the lot of us as soon as we landed? He could have gotten Rick and me the night we met you for dinner. We walked in a lot of dark places, and we weren't particularly on guard. Oh, we tried, Tony reminded them. We surprised him in my room at the Manila Hotel. Probably he was examining my effects to see if I had maps or charts. Then he waited in the walled city and tried to pick the two of you off with rifle fire. Chata spoke up. Not so easy to find chances to kill, even in a city like Manila. With gangs, yes. Alone, no. He's right, Tony agreed. And somewhere along the line, Nangolat had to change a hat. I don't know why. Perhaps his research told him that the drought and earthquakes would follow the digging up of the Golden Skull only if it should be done by unbelievers like us. Perhaps if the faithful do the uncovering, the Ifugwe gods will smile. I don't know. But Nangolat decided he wanted the expedition to help him find the artifacts. The old competitive spirit got to him, Scotty murmured. Wanted his side to win. Maybe, Tony said with a grin. Anyway, he got away with the earth scanner. He had it when Nast turned me over to him. Of course he couldn't use it. So he must have planned to capture one or all of us. He could have waited until the expedition got here, but then things would have been complicated because we'd be hiring diggers and camp helpers, which he knew we intended to do. Also, we intended to contact the road commissioner at Bontoc, a guy who represents law and order such as it is around here. So Nangalad apparently decided to stake everything on capturing us, forcing us to find the cash, and then removing our heads. By the time the law got around to looking for us, the artifacts would have been well hidden by the Ifugues, and so would have been our bodies. Our skulls would be aging gracefully in some hidden place, and no Ifugue would know a single thing about it when questioned. It was a pretty good scheme. Except for one thing, Rick corrected. The terraces cover miles. We could spend weeks searching. There's one bit of evidence you don't have, boys. Remember, there is a major clue to the whereabouts of the cache. A dragon. Well, Nangolat knows, and has always known without knowing its significance until now, where the dragon is located. Tony smiled at the interested faces around him. That's not all. I know where it is, too. Chapter 14 Sign of the Dragon The convoy formed at dawn. One jeep was left with Pilly Pill, who had learned to drive while working for the United States Air Force. The other jeep, with Tony, Chada, and Rick, went ahead as advance guard. The truck, with Scotty, Unhel, Balaban, and Dogmeat, carried the equipment. The earth scanner had been checked. It worked fine. Picks and shovels were ready, as were Tony's cleaning brushes, knives, and other tools. When electronic science had located the treasure, old-fashioned digging methods would unearth it. Rifles, carbines, and the single-action shotgun were loaded and ready. Hunting knives hung at belts. Rick, driving the lead jeep, followed the twisting road up into the clouds that always seemed to hover at the top of the divide. It was bitter cold, but they were warmly dressed in clothing from their camp supplies. They kept a sharp lookout for Ifugwe guards, but the road was deserted. 
As the road descended into a Fuquay country, Tony kept watching for the first rice terrace. Soon he motioned to Rick. Around this turn, I think. Slow. Rick rounded the turn and emerged on a natural terrace overlooking Banue Valley. The sun, just risen, was a golden ball veiled with mist. It gave the valley a warm, subdued light that reflected from the green rice and from the sheen of water in some terraces. It was a scene of indescribable beauty. For long moments, the occupants of truck and jeep just looked and said nothing. Then Dogmeat and Balaban slipped from the truck and went down the road to take up guard positions. Rick and Tony went to the truck and took the earth scanner from Scotty. They carried it to the edge of the natural terrace and set it up. The others joined them, weapons in hand. Chato watched with special interest as the covers were taken from the portable boxes. He had never seen the earth scanner in operation. Plenty magic, I bet. You scientists make poor native boys scared for this machine. Rick snorted. Come on, be useful. Poor native boy. Connect those leads for me. They go into the faint stock clips on those A batteries. Chada made the connection with the ease of one who has worked with electronic apparatus before. But he kept muttering about how the poor native boy was plenty snowed by the wonderful scientists. Rick just grinned and went ahead with connecting up the scanner. Tony didn't quite know what to make of Chada at first, but soon the Hindu boy's dexterity convinced him that Chada was pulling his leg. Scotty threatened Chada with the butt end of his rifle. I'd offer you to the Ifugues if I didn't know they can't use empty heads. You let that poor native boy alone, Rick said with false concern. He lifted the probe from its foam rubber-lined receptacle and plugged its cord into the control panel. The earth scanner was ready to operate. Its appearance was not unusual. There was a power pack consisting of batteries and a dynamotor, an amplifier and a control panel. The control panel was an oscilloscope. The probe looked like an aluminum pipe, but was really a special tube built like a segment of coaxial cable. The sensing unit was in the inner core, surrounded by an atmosphere of pressurized helium. At the tip end of the probe was the sensing element, which looked very much like the Geiger tube of a radiation detector surrounded by a helical coil. Come on, you poor native. I'll show you how this works, Rick invited. You're not expecting to find stuff here. You're just testing, right? Chada asked. We want to get a standard pattern, Rick said. He pointed to the valley. The terrace soil and rocks should be no different than those right here. So we'll get the typical response of these. And when we get to our location, we won't have to take time, which could be important if we have a Fugue spear thrower shooting at us. What typical response? Chada asked. Rick showed him the helical coil at the end of the probe. This coil is an antenna. It's shooting out electromagnetic waves of very high frequency. When those waves hit anything, some are reflected. The reflected waves are picked up by the tube inside the coil. Are you following? We're ahead of you, Chava said. Not all things reflect these waves the same, right? Maybe the more dense, the better reflect. So loose earth not reflect too good, rocks a little better, metal very good, and stuff like crystals best of all. 
Yeah, right, poor native boy, Tony said chidingly. You knew how this thing worked all along. Rick shook his head. He's never seen it before, Tony. It's just that he's pretty quick on the uptake for a poor native boy. Chada grinned. Okay, chums, I'll drop the gag. Go ahead, Rick. I don't know everything yet. Why are you testing here? The minerals make up the rocks and soil here, and they'll show us a pattern. We'll mark the pattern on this plastic screen. Rick indicated a circle of white plastic that was scaled like the face of the oscilloscope. Then we'll go hunting. We'll be looking for deviations from the pattern. For example, there probably is no metal in the ground here. We're looking for metal. When we find it, the blip on the oscilloscope will stand out pretty plainly, right? I think so. It sounds easy. Let's see it work. Rick held the tip of the probe at waist level. Tony adjusted the controls until the scope flickered bright green. A vertical line on the face of the scope was a much lighter green, almost white. Then as Tony switched the activation circuit, the vertical line formed a pattern that varied in width from top to bottom. Here and there was a blip, a clear horizontal line thrust out both ways from the center. The present pattern was not unlike that of a stylized Christmas tree, with broad blips representing branches at the base and increasingly narrower ones representing the branches at the top. Rick quickly sketched the pattern on the plastic circle. Now watch, he said. He put his rifle on the ground under the probe. The Christmas tree pattern developed a new element that ruined the design. It was a strong blip thrusting out from the center, about halfway up the pattern. See? Steel! Other metals with good reflective qualities should show blips slightly higher or lower on the scale. That is some gadget, Chada said admiringly. What else do you need to know? That's it. Tony was already closing the cover of the control panel. We're ready to move. Rick, suppose we just set this stuff in the back of the jeep instead of disconnecting it. Chada could carry the probe. That's a good idea. Then it'll be ready for use. Scotty and Angel had been watching for signs of life in the valley below. At Rick's hail, they joined the group. Last instructions, Tony said. We will try to persuade Nangulat that our intentions are good and we don't want to violate any taboos and that we will do everything in our power to persuade the authorities that the artifacts should remain in the Ufugwe country. If Nangolat is not there, Angel added, I will explain to the Ufugwes that we are friends and that we are helping them to find sacred things that were lost many years ago. None of that works, Scotty picked up. We'll make one sweep with the scanner looking for the cash while holding off the Ufugwes, if they attack, that is. If one sweep turns up nothing, well, then we'll beat a retreat. We'll have to worry about spears, Tony said. But the Afugwe spear is uh, primarily a stabbing weapon. They are not marksmen that the Sulu are, for example, with an Asagai. The risk will not be very great. I need not warn you to keep under cover as much as possible, and to shoot low if we gotta shoot. A leg wound will put a man out of action just as effectively as a hole in the head at least when his weapon is a spear. We don't want bloodshed. We archaeologists are a peaceful lot. Let's go, Scotty said. He climbed into the truck. Let's make peace with the Ifugues. Put your truck in a four-wheel drive, Rick called. He started the jeep. 
then shifted into his own four-wheel drive. Then, with a toot on the horn, he started off. A few yards down the road, Balaban and Dogmeat were waiting. Scotty slowed to let them climb aboard. Then the two-vehicle caravan sped up to the maximum that the mountain road would allow. Tony leaned forward, watching intently for the turnoff. Rick kept the jeep in second as he led the winding way down the mountainside toward the bottom of the valley. The road was dirt and badly rutted. If they should meet another car, one would have to back up until a turnaround was reached, but it was unlikely that another car would be out at this time of morning. Chances were that a car passed this way only once in a great while. They were among the rice terraces now. No matter which way Rick looked, his eyes met terraces. Some were no bigger than tabletops, perhaps filling a tiny space between bigger terraces. Some retaining walls were only a foot high, while the next step up or down the mountain might be a twenty-foot wall. Irregular giant steps, green with growing rice. Here and there was one with no rice, showing only a film of water. Easy. We turned just a short distance ahead. In another quarter mile, he pointed. Take that road. It was little more than a path that wound a corkscrew way among the terraces, hugging the mountain wall. This was the way Nangolat had brought Tony, not even bothering to blindfold him. Rick held the wheel tightly to keep it from jerking out of his hands on impact in a rock. Then up ahead, the road suddenly leveled. Rick recognized the scene. He had been here last night, during the hours of darkness. The mist had not yet cleared. The limits on his vision made the scene seem more like it had last night. He knew that to the left, three terraces down, was the village. Now he could see that to the right of the road was a small meadow, or large terrace. He couldn't tell which. The meadow ran perhaps a 150 feet from the road to the base of a retaining wall. It was a very high wall, probably at least 60 feet. Rick hadn't seen another nearly so high. Turn right, go into the meadow, Tony said. Rick dropped the jeep back into low gear and swung the wheel. The jeep climbed over a single row of rocks and moved easily across the meadow. Rick thought the row of rocks probably constituted a retaining wall, so that made it a terrace instead of a meadow. Anyway, it was firm under the tires. Behind the jeep, Scotty took the truck over the row of stones as easily as he would have negotiated a high curb at home. He followed Rick across the meadow. Rick could see now that the base of the high retaining wall was a considerable recess. He asked with mounting excitement, Is the dragon there? Tony nodded. Let's turn around, back into the recess as far as possible. We want to be facing out in case we have to leave in a hurry. Rick did so, then directed Scotty. Not until the vehicles were in place did they run into the recess and look. There on the pedestal was a smaller addition of the one that Rick had seen at Alto Yuan. It was the dragon. Chapter 15 Under the Dragon's Claws The Spindrift group jumped into action. Rick, Tony, and Chada carried their earth scanner into the recess and set it up. Scotty consulted with Angel, and at a word from the Filipino, Balaban the Igorot climbed the wall to the terrace above their heads, where he sprawled among the rice with rifle ready. 
Angel moved to the left about 50 feet, while Scotty moved the same distance to the right. Dogmeat ran down the meadow to the road, crossed the terrace, and took up a watch on the village. We gotta work fast, Tony said. They must know we're here. If they didn't see us, they at least heard the motors. Rick was ready to work. He plugged in the probe, checked the controls, then turned them over to Tony. The scientist set the controls and turned on the activation switch. Rick moved the probe in a long sweep starting in front of the dragon, while Tony and Chada watched the scope. Standard pattern, Tony reported. Keep moving. No, no change. No, no, no change. Rick stepped sideways and moved the probe through a slightly different arc. No change. Again, Rick took a step and swung the probe. He kept moving until the probe had nearly covered the ground in front of the dragon. Then he took a position next to the bronze statue and covered the ground directly under its nose. Wait a minute. There was excitement in Tony's voice. Hey, you're on to something. Metal? Rick asked quickly. No, it's not a metal response. Some kind of stone. But not the usual type found around here. Tony had a pad out and was making a sketch of the recess, marking the position of the dragon. Then while Rick moved the probe in a new arc, his pencil shaded in the area where the odd response showed on the scope. Rick repeated the scanning process to one side of the dragon, and again, the response was normal until he got close. He changed size, and the result was the same. Then he went to the rear of the dragon, expecting a changed response there, but the results were identical. At last, he gave up, feeling a bit down, and joined Tony and Chada. They were examining Tony's sketch. It's plenty clear to me, Chada said. Right under Old Man Dragon is round hole, see? Chada was right. The changed responses, when charted on Tony's sketch, showed a circle about six feet in diameter, with its center directly under the dragon. But no metal. That's really odd, said Tony. Rick frowned. It can't be an underground base for the dragon. A base would be close to the surface. This response seems to start about two feet under it. He started out across the meadow and noted that Dogmeat was trotting toward them, but he paid no attention because his mind was working on the problem. It could be a crypt of some kind, he said to himself. He went to the truck and got a shovel. I have an idea, and he went to work. Dogmeat arrived and was chattering excitedly. Angel came running, and he listened and translated. The village is up in arms. Nangolot is making a speech and the young men are getting ready to make war. Rick dug, working on a shaft under the dragon's pedestal. The earth was packed hard, and he had to get a pick. Tony relieved him, and they took turns until the shaft slanted in to what they estimated was a point directly under the center of the pedestal. Now, Rick said, he took the probe. He put the probe into the shaft and watched expectantly while Tony adjusted the controls. Suddenly, the scope flickered, breaking up the Christmas tree pattern. There were at least three different responses, two of them definitely in the metal range. This is it, Tony yelled. It has to be. Rick, that was an inspiration. The cache is directly under the dragon. There was another yell from outside the recess. It was Balaban 
on the terrace above. They come! For the moment, the find was forgotten. The spindrift party stood between the truck and jeep, watching as nearly a hundred Fugue warriors walked with menacing silence to the edge of the meadow and stopped. Nangolat, naked, except for a breechcloth, stepped from the ranks of the Fugue warriors. He held a spear a foot taller than he was, a vicious weapon with a triangular point and a flared base. The Ifugwe walked ceremoniously across the meadow to a point twenty yards in front of the recess. You're trapped, he said, his voice trembling with hatred. You can't get away from us now. Come out. Throw down your spears. Tony stepped forward, rifle held carelessly under an arm. He stopped ten paces in front of the Ifugwe. You and me want the same thing, he said. The artifacts. Nangolat thrust the metal-shot base of his spear into the earth. We want the same thing, but for different reasons. I want to preserve the sacred objects of my people. You want to desecrate them. That's not true, Tony replied. When we touch them, it'll be with reverence, with respect for the gods of Manawe'e. Then, when we have collected them all, we will buy many pigs for a great feast of thanksgiving for all the people of Ufugwe. The sacred objects will be used by your priests for ceremony. Then you, Nangolat, will go with us when we carry them to Manila. In Manila, we will measure them, photograph them, make sketches. Those methods are familiar to you. Tony paused, searching Nangolat's face for some sign of a change in his attitude. When we're done, we will ask to see the President of the Philippines. We will petition him to assist in building a temple museum on this very spot, my scientific foundation will give the first donation for the purpose. Dr. Okola will help. Then I hope the sacred objects can come back to the Ifugwe to stay forever, in a place where all Ifugues may see them. Tony held out his hand, palm upward. Is that desecration? Nangolat leaned forward, half bowing in his excitement. The artifacts must not leave Ifugwe! You know Dr. Ricola, Tony replied. Would he insist that they go to Manila? I would not. I could take photographs and measurements right here. The objects need not leave here. So far as I am concerned, it would be between you and the Filipino authorities. Nangolat was obviously impressed. Wait, he commanded. I must talk with the priests. He turned on his heel and walked back to the waiting Fugue warriors. Several men detached themselves from the group and followed as he led the way across the terrace to the village. Rick breathed freely for the first time. I think he's going to go for it, Tony. I certainly hope so, the scientist said with relief. But regardless of how the decision goes, the artifacts have to be collected. Let's get some work done. How to get the dragon away from the underground crypt was solved with the truck winch. The cable was passed around the pedestal, and the whole business just hauled forward. Then Rick, Scotty, Angel, and Chada began to dig, while Tony examined each inch of progress for signs that the crypt was being reached. A whistle came from outside. Dogbeat beckoned. The party stopped digging and hurried out in time to see a station wagon come to a halt on the road above the village. 
Six men got out and were met by an elderly Ifugwe. But before they were ushered to the village, they took time to stare at the Spindrift expedition. The Spindrift group stared back with a combination of fear, disappointment, and disgust. Four of the men were strangers. One was an American, James Nast. The sixth was the assistant secretary of the interior. <laughs>